Well, again, special welcome if you're visiting us this morning. And um, uh, as we come now to God's word, uh, let, let's ask for God's help. It's a, a challenging two chapters. So there's, there's quite a lot of material here. So we really need to engage brains to, I think, keep up with um, so much happening in, in these two chapters. So let's ask for God's help. Father, we thank you uh, for your word, that you give us stories that engage our minds and our imaginations, uh, but also ground the truth in history and in real people. And we pray now as we engage with these real people in these real times, that you'd help us to see your glory. Uh, We pray for those who are established in this church, those who are just visiting today, uh, those who may not yet know you, but are exploring uh, faith in you that you'd be guiding each one of us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as a Christian pastor family, ministry family, we moved around quite a lot. Um, I spent my first 20-plus years in Camden on the edge of Sydney. We then spent uh, five years in Croydon, where Ashley and I met and were married. Uh, Then we had several years in Mongolia, and then Walker in rural New South Wales, then back to Croydon, and now to Dremoyne. So I haven't given my wife a trophy for this yet, but that I think would be good. She's moved around a lot. We've moved around a lot. And one of, those, um, one of the things you notice as you move around a lot and you engage with different people over, over the years is that I meet people that I haven't met sometimes for 10, 15, 20, 25 years from different chapters of my life. And so I wonder, as uh, someone who's missed years in their life, how they've changed. It's like a time warp where I... For me, the last memory of them was, was then, and then suddenly I'm back in their company again. How have they changed? And because I'm a pastor, a chief interest is I have is how people have grown as disciples of Jesus. Has the person I known that I knew socially at church 15 years ago grown? Uh, perhaps they were quite flippant in their faith back then, uh, absent when it came to church serving, They saw church as perhaps just another social group. They were aware of Jesus but didn't really seem to embrace him personally in their lives. Well, 15 years later, I can't help but wonder, has that changed or has it not? What gets me excited is when people have switched on spiritually in the years since I've seen them, when they have a living relationship with God that's developed. Uh, They tend to be grateful and humble and, and hungry to learn. They uh, speak of answers to prayers in conversation with them. They seem clear about what matters and therefore have a ballast that steadies their ship. They seem to be settled, wise, and generally make good decisions. I wonder if we were to part company for the next 15 years, all of us went our separate ways, what will your story look like in 15 years' time? How deliberate will you have been in pursuing a discipleship story, a story in which you cooperated with the Holy Spirit so that your life resembles Jesus. So the title for this talk, prompted by Acts 6 to 7, is What's Your Story, DPC? What's Our Story to Be? Now is our time to be writing our story. What's our story to be as a church community? In Acts 6, we ask, what's Stephen's story? To make these two chapters simpler, these headings, what's Stephen's story? Then in chapter 7, it's what's Israel's story? And if you've never read the Old Testament, there's a one-chapter summary written by Stephen, or 
written by Luke, chapter 7, Stephen's words. And then chapter 7, at the end of that, we see Stephen's story and ours ends with Jesus. So first then, what's Stephen's story? Stephen's given mention here in the book of Acts because he is one of the seven servant-hearted men God uses to avoid yet another threat to the harmony of the spread of the church and, and the health of the church. And with the health of the church is the spread of the gospel. Two Sundays ago, we saw it was persecution that threatened the gospel. We saw God over, overwhelm that. Last Sunday in Acts 5, it was deceit within the church. And today in Acts 6, there's a cultural tension now within the church between Jews and Gentiles with the complaint that the Jewish widow, uh, the Gentile widows are being overlooked in the church's aid program. So it doesn't seem such a big thing, but internal division can be massive. The apostles could try to manage the problem, but they know managing such problems is not primarily what Christ has commissioned them to do. Verse 2, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve, on table, to serve tables. They realized serving tables was important at the time and needed doing. But the cost for the church would be too great if the apostles ceased preaching and teaching in order to fix these material problems. Or again there in verse 4, we will devote ourselves to what? To prayer and to the ministry of the word. Notice while prayer seems the easiest thing in church life to neglect, someone said if you don't want anyone to come to a meeting, put the word prayer in the title. It's very easy to neglect prayer, but it's of the utmost importance alongside proclaiming God's word. Now, I'm not an apostle, but the pastors at DPC, uh, fresh though we are to, to, to our roles, we're keen to keep the word and prayer central to what we do. Now, that can be ourselves, uh, by ourselves, it can be as a team, it can be uh, in church time, it can be with people, with you. Um, we love meeting to read the Bible and pray. We want to echo uh, Stephen's priority there, or the Apostle's priority. Now, we don't know much about Stephen, what he looked like, the clothes he wore, the profession, the trade he had, his family situation, his wealth status. Rather, of vital importance for Stephen was that he had the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has been a major player through the book of Acts, hasn't it? The Spirit meant, in Stephen's case, that he was full of faith, if you look at verse 5 there. Or verse 8 says, with the Spirit meant he, he was full of grace and power. The same words you might remember were describing the apostles' work in chapters 4 and 5. For Stephen, the grace and power led him to do great wonders and signs among the people. Now, if you've got your Old Testament hats on and you think back to early in the Old Testament, language of Moses and the deliverance from Israel was used by Luke here to describe what Stephen and the apostles were doing. Tuck that away for now, that this language describing Stephen had earlier described Moses in Egypt. And then supremely it described Jesus, power, grace, wonders and signs. So that's Stephen's story. He's a spiritually reborn Jew with a Greek name who can bless Greek widows with his table service. But he's also ready to talk about Jesus. And we see here that the spirit who inspired scripture gave Stephen a potent wisdom to explain and apply them. 
a clarity and insightfulness his educated accusers just couldn't match. Verse 10 we read, they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Now tragically, Stephen's inspired story, and one that we can imitate, is seen as intolerable to the Jewish leaders who saw Jesus the same way two years earlier. They got smashed when they debated Stephen, and they got smashed when they debated Jesus. But they come with the same predictable, despicable tactics against Jesus' follower Stephen here. Notice the way they falsely accuse him. Um, Verse 11, they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So the false witnesses here have, in verse 13, say Stephen is three things. One, he's against Moses. Two, he's against the customs handed down. And three, he's against the temple. And chapter 7 is going to spell those things out. Um, All Stephen's earlier signs and wonders that have been publicly performed didn't convince them that he was from God. And now, not even Stephen's bright, angelic appearance convinces them. Look at verse 15. All who are sitting in the Sanhedrin, this wasn't a limited viewing, all there could see, they looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now read Exodus 34 and you will see Moses' face shone in the presence of God. He wear a veil when dwelling among men. Well, look at Stephen, verse 15. His face, too, now shining like the face of an angel. It seems to be, I don't know if it's God's sense of humor or irony, that Stephen, when being accused of being anti-Moses, is actually resembling him like few others in Scripture. It's a bit like a brother being accused of being unrelated to his identical twin. And then the identical twin walks in, and it's obvious to all looking on that they're twins. Well, by increasing the similarities, God is making their case embarrassing. The innocent onlooker might wonder, for someone allegedly anti-Moses, he sure resembles him in remarkable ways, doesn't he? History's author seems to be giving his artistic touch, the artist's unmistakable signature on this event, so that the legitimacy of this angelic messenger is clear. In the Greek language, angel and messenger are the same word, and this messenger of God looks angelic. So Stephen's angelic appearance resembles Moses' radiant face. He's from me. Listen to him. That's the clear message, isn't it? When Jesus is shining, that's the message. This is my son. Listen to him. Again, this is my servant, listen to him. Well, surely, even if it didn't help the Jews in Stephen's day, it should help us, shouldn't it? As those a bit less sceptical and resistant to Jesus, to listen intently to what he says, this shining messenger. Well, in chapter 7, verse 1, it's the high priest, the person at the top of a Jewish religious tree, like similar to the Pope of the Catholic Church. He asked Stephen, Are these dodgy accusations your story, Stephen? Or to use his own words, are these charges true? Charges he knew weren't true himself? Like his master Jesus, Stephen flips the disingenuous question towards them. What's my story, you want to know? 
Well, let me tell you what's your story. Let me ask you what's your story. Stephen isn't afraid. He knows the truth of Jesus. And so as one author puts it, it's like no one has told Stephen that he is the accused. He acts as though he is the persecuting, uh, prosecuting attorney. He's got the boldness the disciples were praying for. Um, it's a prayer of our church, isn't it? Or it can be. Lord, give us boldness that we might share what Stephen has there. Here he is in a corrupted courtroom, filled with judges acting more like criminals, producing false witnesses, lying, twisting truth instead of seeking it. And here Stephen is ready to share a gospel that's going to cost him his life. So what is Israel's story, Stephen? Well, time allows us just a skim of chapter 7 here. But it's a brilliant recollection of Israel's history. I say brilliant because Stephen, with the Holy Spirit's help, draws the three accusations they bring against him and shows how these three areas actually call them to repent of doing just what they're doing at the moment, to change their story, to stop acting so typically. You want to hear what I think about Moses' law and temple? Okay, but each of these topics are going to condemn you. That's what he might be thinking. He doesn't say that at the outset. He wants to keep them on board. Now, some people like to um, state the point up front in a conversation. I don't know if you're one of those people. Uh, my wife and I have noticed differences about that. Um, sometimes Ashley will give a lot of context and, and um, fill things out, and then the point will come at the end. And I typically will say the point and then give more detail if needed. I don't know if it's a, a male-female thing. I'm sure there's variety in that. But Stephen here is painting the picture before he gets to the point. Jesus does it too in parables, paints the picture because he knows the point's going to hurt and he wants them nodding all the way to the end. It may be he knows they're not going to like his point. What's your story, Stephen? Well, he begins tactfully in verse, chapter 7, verse 2 by telling them their story. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Affectionate language. I'm one of you guys. He recounts what the, uh, their God of glory has done from the time of our father Abraham. Okay, he wants to keep them on board. He affirms Abraham. He affirms circumcision, covenant. And Moses is honoured as the deliverer, verse 35. But he can't help tell the story of Israel without saying, verse 9, that in their jealousy and their lack of knowledge, verses 25 and 35, I warned you it's a skim, they rejected God's servants, God's leader and God's deliverer, Moses. Let's look at the sample of what this angel-faced messenger, Stephen, says in verses 37 to 40. Verse 37, this is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. And he received living words to pass on to us. Surely we'd be listening to him. But, verse 39, our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. Our story is not so glamorous, brothers and fathers, he says. 
It's not so much that we are the people of Abraham, Moses, and the law. We are the people who reject Abraham and Moses and the law. And so, Stephen says, verse 42, God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the, law, in the book of the prophets. It's not just Moses who says that. It's all of the prophets and Jesus, the prophets, said would come. I've just been reading Amos at the moment, um, just in my quiet times, and I notice the great judgment God brings against Israel when they just continually disobey him is he withdraws his word and says, you won't have access to my word anymore. What a crushing judgment that is. Here Israel are having God's word delivered to them from an angel-faced messenger. But it's no wonder at the end of verse 43 that God finally said to Israel, I'll send you into exile beyond Babylon. Well, my dad loves sayings. He's a sayings person. He's got a saying for every occasion. I haven't tested him on, on that recently. But one of them is, David, there's no use getting older if you don't get wiser. It's no use getting older if you don't get wiser. 1,500 years later, Israel are still doing the same thing, killing their messengers. And 15 years later, will you still be where you are now? I take it you're not enemies of Jesus. Here you are in church. But I'd love to see this growing of wisdom with the aid of God's word and spirit as you pursue that. If only Stephen was heeded by them at the time. To stop making the same mistake over and over again. To make Israel's typical less typical. And so Stephen's point is, if you understand Scripture rightly, you will be led to deep contrition, a readiness to wisen up, to recognize the authority of a messenger when he's speaking to you face to angelic face. What's our story, Israel? It's a humbling one, one that would cause us to pause before we kill another messenger. Our ancestors just kept killing them and we've got to wise up and stop doing it. It's like, I thought the, end, the war to end all wars was World War II. <laughs> that was actually World War I that was given that title. And here we are in Europe now and you think, really? Europe are looking at it thinking we've had decades of peace. Do we really want to go back this way? Have we not learnt from history? Well... Stephen says, we've rejected Moses, we've rejected his law, and we've idolized the temple that could never contain God. That's what the last verses, verses 49 to 50 there are saying in that section. He then brings it to a head. The point comes in verse 51, and if you're waiting for the point, you won't miss it here, I think. Stephen doesn't want us to miss it. And here's where he's, he's going past crossing a line he can't come back from, and he knows it. You stiff-necked people, that gentle our language is gone. You stiff-necked people. Stephen respects Moses enough to borrow this phrase that Moses used of Israel. And the we here has become very much you and your from now on. There are seven yous and yours in these three verses in the NIV. You, your, you, your, you, your, you. So listen as God's word exposes the darkness, the fire of God's word. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people, 
Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. Even this angel speaking to you now, you reject. It's a word for Israel. It's a word for us. Because while my face isn't shining, it's very much God's word we're hearing today, isn't it? You know, submission to the Lord Jesus isn't optional. It really isn't. What was true then is true now. That our king insists that we acknowledge his place over our lives. If you're visiting here today and haven't done that, there's no better day to do it than today, to talk to someone who you know is a Christian and make peace with him forever. But others of us might have dark corners in our lives, and it's time to let this bright light of Jesus come into those dark corners. Let him have his way now rather than later. Israel was so twisted in their thinking that they put to death the king of life, the righteous one, as is described in verse 52. And we are in exactly the same boat, though we won't pick up the stones to kill Stephen, we won't put the nails in Jesus' hands, but we're in the same spiritual side. God's Satan's. We mustn't sideline him or ignore him. Well, point three in your outline there. Let's see how Stephen's story ends with the Lord Jesus in verses 54 to 60. And it illustrates those two sides. You've got a choice. Path of life. Which way are you going to go? The two invisible kingdoms that are very much in operation in the world around us. God's or Satan's. As we see a conflict develop. I'll let the text do most of the talking in this last section. First, we see the spiritual evil, the darkness, verse 54, the domain of Satan. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard Stephen's words, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at Stephen. Next, the spirit of light. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What a great time for Jesus to appear, hey, for Stephen? Now, we saw Jesus ascend at the end of chapter 1. The wonderful thing I find from this chapter is that Jesus is still there. He's standing, not sitting. He's active, he's present, he's engaged as the risen Lord of the church. As Paul will tell anxious Christians, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. And so, DPC, if our sight was unveiled, if the eternal kingdom's king wants to show himself, he can very easily do so. There he is. Look, Stephen says, verse 56, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's an awesome image to have in your minds as you carry it out of church today. But then we go back to the darkness, verse 57. At Stephen's words, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. They remind me of the pigs in in Mark's gospel where there's a chaotic destructiveness uh, 
Satan's signature. And they dragged this wise, servant-hearted man, verse 58, out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Another lovely sign, I think, in this text is that Stephen is having an impression, even in his death, on this young man, Saul, watching on. Saul, a ferocious wolf of Satan who will become Paul, the defender of Christ's precious sheep. And so, friends, we, as we look at the final verses, as we see the stones being thrown at Stephen, we might consider the next 15 years of our life. Notice the way the spirit of Jesus has made Stephen to be like Jesus executed for the kingdom, trusting his spirit will be received by the the God above, praying for those who persecute him, praying for forgiveness of those who hate him. Verse 59, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. One of the few times, perhaps the only time, Jesus is prayed to directly in the New Testament. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Why why does it not say he died? I take it that because that that would give the wrong impression. This chapter of his life is over, but just as the Lord lives, so too does Stephen and will Stephen. I wonder, friends, what story are you writing at the moment? How well does it resemble Stephen's? We've seen two ways to live, two kingdoms on offer here, and we daily choose one over the other. We can daily reject those seven yous and yours, and we can make Jesus increasingly our new you. While we lived in Mongolia, we had a a friend whose dad, uh, would have been in his 60s or 70s, had a reputation for being negative and miserable and grumpy. Uh, he began, uh, he was known at the, at the family gatherings as just a grump and, and, and brought a downer on everyone, criticism and everything. Well, he began reading the Bible, as uh, my friend gave him uh, a Mongolian Bible. And as he read it, he began to get really frustrated with Israel. He just started from Genesis and was reading through. Israel, why do you keep making the same mistakes? Why can't you trust the God who always looks after you? And it wasn't long before my friend's dad saw his own need for God's forgiveness and became a Christian. Everyone in the family noticed the change. They said it was like the gatherings just changed their tone. He lightened up. He became more joyful and kind. We might say he wisened up. There's no use getting older if you don't get wiser. And friends, wisdom will follow Jesus. Well, let's pray. Our great God, Father, and risen Son, Holy Spirit, we confess that Israel's history is too much like our personal history. And Lord, if we studied it, our church history as well. Too much self and too much distrust and too many choices that dishonor you. We deserve your judgment like anybody else. 
And yet by your spirit you have shown us Jesus. You have opened our eyes to him and led us to repent and believe in him and his work for us. May we be a church writing stories that are like Stephen's. A church full of Stephen's, those made to resemble Jesus as we cooperate with your spirit's work in us. Determined not just to pass time, but to be faithful and earnest and devout and selfless wise servants of the Lord Jesus, diverse in gifts and service, but with reverence for the Lord Jesus in common. And so we pray as those for whom the Lord Jesus is near and in his name. Amen.